He's the man in the back of the room. Y con la voz de Dios. He's told U.S. presidents where to sit, CEOs where to go, and stars when to shine. But as he likes to point out, Who cares? I care. It's true, she cares. And so does he. He's entertainment and production agency owner and meeting and event master, Anthony Bellotta. She's his Agent 99, and you're about to be Bellottified. Hi, friends, and welcome to another episode of Bellotified, the one and only pod about events, entertainment, and engagement. I'm Anthony Bellotta, and I'm here as I am every single week with the delicious, always optimistic Galaxia Cristina Posalides. Opa! Opa! Well, that was loud. <laughs> mine was, sorry. Okay. No, mine was. Oh. Mine was. Mine was. Yours is fine. <laughs> I'm all discombobulated today. <sighs> so uh, we had a weekend of activities this weekend, and one of them was Mr. Alan Zider's uh, retirement party, which uh-huh. was on Wednesday from uh, the NTC Foundation, where he's been the executive director for 20 years and uh, is the gent that was brought in to turn NTC into what it is today, which is a cultural and artistic mecca for San Diego. Uh, So he's retiring. And then we went to his birthday celebration on Sunday. And uh, all this sort of leads to the fact that uh, we had a great time. But one of his friends, Scott, now lives in Greece. Oh, where in Greece? Oh, I didn't ask him where. He lived in Greece. We didn't really talk a lot about Greece, uh, but he did bring up his yaya. <laughs> and that's, you know, that's all I really need to know. <laughs> oh, and that has a whole different meaning for people who don't know what a yaya is. Right, right. <laughs> I actually wonder if our guests will know what a yaya is. We might have to ask her when she Ooh, when she comes in. Yeah. Oh. So, so it was a really, really, uh, really interesting weekend, you know, uh, very cloudy and gray here in San Diego. We're we're suffering with what's called June gloom. Uh, that is which, one of the benefits of living in the East County. I am yes. sunny and it was it was sunny this weekend to pull me through the final stretch. Good for of, you. Of work. So, yeah. Yeah. For those of you who aren't familiar with with this part of the country, uh, we have what's called microclimates here. So depending on where you are in the city, you you might be five or 10 or even 15 or 20 degrees variance from another place, just 10 miles down the road or five miles down the road. It's, it's a very unique, uh, what would I say, uh, weather system that we have here, climate yes. arrangement. Yeah. Arrangement. I like that. We it's, have here. it's an agreement. It's, it's, it's a definitely. weather agreement. Yes, it is. That's the Sicilian side. It's changing, and they didn't tell us <laughs> when we signed up. They did not. They didn't say in 20 years it's going to get so hot. And by the way, the humidity that you don't have now, well, you're going to have it later. They didn't say <laughs> that. Anyway, 
we have nothing to complain about. As, no, absolutely as not. Been here knows. So, uh, yeah, so it was a great, great, great weekend. Just, you know, lots of activity. How about you? Uh, I, well, this particular weekend I was, um, well, first of all, I just want to say congratulations to Alan because he is a tremendous human being. Um, I, I adore him. Uh, this weekend for me, it was uh, the great big push to get a final paper done. 28 pages, 26 it, pages. Well, it was with references. It was, so it was a 20 page paper and then five, five or six of references. Yeah. Nice. So nice. still teaching myself how to do all that. Yeah. What's the hardest part about writing for you? Is it the writing no. or, is, or is it the rereading what you've written? Um, oh, uh, the proofing, unless I really love it, the writing portion, I absolutely adore when I can write in my style. Yes. So for, we had weekly writings I had to do, and those were awesome because I got to pretty much do stream of conscious writing and I could be funny and pull in things and all of that. I absolutely adored mm. the term paper. Did it didn't go so well when I did it for the term paper. So I had to completely change focus and rewrite it and was able to use a lot of what I had previously done, but I had form to formalize it a bit. Yeah. And it's, it was a bit like an actor on stage indicating, you know, which is a director's worst nightmare. But uh, on paper, that's what's necessary. I know. And it was yes. really difficult from my first person perspective right, right. now. And then their right. third person experience. And it was, oh, oh my God. I At right. one point I thought I just stopped. I'm like, I can't do this anymore because. It's, you know, they really don't want to know what you think. They want to know why you think what you think. Yeah. Yeah. It's just so, you know, it was, it, but, but I did it and. Uh, I know. I know. It's an accomplishment, right? It it's is just like it's you plowed through. I you plowed powered through, through and many a tear, yes. many a tear. We're worth every single <laughs> drop. <laughs> yes, every single sleepless night for the past eleven weeks. So that yeah. actually reminds me of my tip for today. <gasps> Let's get tipsy today. I'd like to use my tipsy time to share a word of encouragement. Talk about resiliency. Now, no doubt you've heard the term, but are you actually familiar with it on a deeper, more personal level, I wonder? I've been thinking about this myself, and what I've come to realize is that what I'm currently doing is enduring, which feels very different than being resilient. Enduring and for some level of anguish. While resiliency conjures up notions of untouched superheroism, like the difference between working in an abusive, unfulfilling environment and not tripping up the steps to accept your Oscar. But the fact is they are one in the same. It's just a question of how we choose, yes, choose to define it for ourselves. Now, I'm admittedly a non-responder, finding it easier to deal with the consequences of not responding, which is that things remain unchanged in the end, or they end with me holding a bag I didn't fill, rather than taking action, which means that I'm left completely powerless and unappreciated. That's the way I'm feeling, neither of which I consider happy feelings. So I'm committing myself on the occasion that it feels right for me to respond to whatever or whomever it is confounding me to three rules of play that I share with you with the hope that they will also help you strengthen your sense of resiliency. 
So my first rule is one, respond with dignity. For me, that means choosing words carefully, avoiding language that might in any way offend, remaining focused on the issue and overall goals at hand, and taking responsibility where appropriate. Two, keep personal goals in mind. I just said it. This guides me in the use of appropriate tone for my response, which would typically be colored by a willingness to come to some kind of mutual solution rather than end a relationship. Because let me tell you, I've done that and it's not something I recommend. And three, be ready and willing to accept the results. I can't say that I love this one either, but with a willingness to be accountable comes great personal power. When that, when the consequences are far from what I intended, even when that happens, and even when my sentiments were misconstrued, I'm still in a better place. Sometimes it happens that way, but I've also learned that I've, if I follow rules one and two, I'm more able to accept the results, which is rule three. Plus that gained sense of personal power makes me feel less put upon and more resilient. And that is my tipsy. Bravo. Why didn't you um, say this to me 10 weeks ago? No, I'm kidding. (laughs) (laughs) No, that was beautifully, beautifully put. Thank you for sharing that. Thank you. Probably because I've been saying it to myself because it's one of those things you have to repeat and repeat yes. and repeat because the yes. world can be kind of mean and un- ungrateful and unthinking. And, you know, you yeah. have to really take care of yourself. Well, you know well, what Yaya would say to all this? I want to know. Yaya would say, Vina dos centavros. Dian dos Santavros. Viandos. Viandos. San. San. Tavros. Tavros. Yeah. Viandos. Santavros. It means strong like bull. So it's the Greek way of being resilient. Oh, strong like bull. Strong like bull. Yes. And she, you know, you know that. She would, um, you know, I think I I have shared with you that. uh, when she was a little girl, the, her family was kicked out of their home. Oh. And they were said, so she's originally, which is why you will only ever hear me re, um, uh, uh, refer to it as Constantinople, even though I know it's Istanbul and it's a beautiful, but it's just ingrained right. um, for fear of raising Mayayas and Papus from the ground. It's always Constantinople. But, you know, the, the favorite saying watching little four foot ten Gaia walk around the house uttering dos samana bichi turkis she got kicked out of her house dos samana bichi turkis they kick me out of my home everybody say goodbye Melpomeni we love you Melpomeni dos samana bichi turkis Goodness. Yes, yes. Oh my goodness. <laughs> God bless her little four oh foot my nine. Lord, school. Yes. Oh, yeah. I'm sure she was a powerhouse. Oh, I am oh. sure. I probably wouldn't want to be, you know, in front of her ever. I'd be shivering. My knees would be shaking. Yeah. She was, she's scary. Strong. Very strong. Oh my Had goodness. That's right. That's mm-hmm. right. Yeah. Okay, before we get started, if you're a new listener, please take this time to like and subscribe. Go ahead. We'll give you a sec. 
why, thank you. All right, so who do we have with us today? Who do we oh, have? We have somebody who they're full. Talk about delicious, Mr. Bellotta. So the coolest thing is we share something in common with our guest today, right? She was a dramatic arts major. I know, a fellow thespian. Yes. Yes, yes, yes. After graduating from UC Santa Barbara, she became a travel agent because of her love of travel, meeting new people and experiencing different cultures. She has worked in all areas of hospitality from dive travel to destination management, hotel sales and marketing and event planning and became a certified event professional in 2001 and carries that certification on through today. She worked for the fundraising unit at UC San Diego when they launched their first major campaign in 2003 and was promoted to managing director of the Advancement Signature Events Team during their second campaign. Ever growing and seeking new challenges, she now works for UC Berkeley as the Strategic Analyst for Southern California Major Gifts Team. Please welcome the beautiful, dressed in red, Michelle Corcoran. Oh my goodness, you're so funny. Yes, dressed in red. (laughs) Lady in red. Oh my gosh, it's my color. Mm -hmm. It is your color. It is your color. You're sparkling. Thank you. Thank you both so much for having me. Such an honor to be here. We're delighted that we have you here with us. And even though we gave a luscious bio intro of you you know we'd like to start with something we call 10 quick questions 10 quick questions 10 quick questions you ready to go two minutes on the clock 10 questions first answer that comes to mind don't overthink these okay number one do you believe in miracles yes (laughs) no she says Hesitatiously. I, I believe in miracles that are um, done by uh, good karma. I, I do believe things happen, and I do believe things happen because you put good vibes out there. Number two, any relation to Barbara Corcoran? I have that a lot, but that is my husband's name, and no, he's not related either. But okay. But, All right, yeah. this interview's over. Thank you. No. Sorry. Uh, Sorry. <laughs> Wrong like answer. On, no. <laughs> I like to see my name on buildings everywhere. Yes, yes, yes. Number three, when was the last time you tried something new? Well, today was a podcast interview. This is the first time ever. Where you're something new. Yes. I mean, well, the most recent, but um, I've been trying some things new a lot. That's kind of my new mantra for the last year. All right. So what quickly, what was the best thing that you tried recently new? Um, what will you do again? And you don't have to say the podcast. Yeah. Well, no. It's, it's, well, I would pro- we'll see. We'll see how this goes. But okay. Um, okay, that's fair. The Sass and Strut Heels class. Where Sass and Strut. Say, do, do tell. Well, uh, think of burlesque for all different ages, and it's about putting yourself out there and just dancing and getting a little sexy vibe on, but, you know, dancing, like real dancing. Yeah, and and performing a little bit. Not that, but there was another um, (laughs) parade I did. But yes, I try some new things all the time. That's how I challenge myself. 
I think that would make a really good class. I think you need to share that information with me. I love this studio. I love this studio. MBDY, we can go into it, but they all ages, all talents. They're fabulous. Okay, question number four. What's the first word that comes to mind when you think about you? I, I have happy is what just came to mind. I think that's oh. a reflection of here. Um, yeah, I try to pursue joy. I, I, I do. I try. <laughs> that's beautiful. Yeah. What is the most memorable live concert, show, festival, theatrical event you've ever experienced? I, I'm going to go with Harry Connick Jr. Um, back in the late 90s in uh, San Jose, there's the outdoor amphitheater there. And I went with this wonderful young man, and it was the best concert because Harry Connick loves to perform. He loves his compadres on stage, but he loves the audience and he wants to perform for you. It was two and a half hours nonstop of him. I've never wow. been to that was just so so genuinely um, collaborative with his onstage orchestra, but also just engaging with the audience. It was Beautiful. awesome. What is your favorite yoga position? <laughs> well, downward facing dog. Um, of and, course. Yes, but <laughs> I have a yoga instructor who um, is really good at making sure you're doing it correctly and it's not just this tough yoga and when you're doing it correctly it does the correct things for you and so i'll leave it there but Mm, yes like everything what's the one thing you wish you could stop doing ah worrying Mm. I, Mm. i wish i could stop worrying about little things yeah yeah now you study dramatic arts can you give us a 10 second? Can you give us 10 seconds of drama right now? Well, that would be a little hard because I wasn't an actress. I was a dramatic structure, literature, and costume design and makeup design major. So I guess I could do the one scene I had. Yes, I could actually. I was the best thing you ever had. And that was from the one play I did it was called Nine Lives and I was one of the one of the it was an original script. It was really bad. <laughs> but it was the one <laughs> That was it. Sorry, I didn't mean to downplay. No, that was you. great. Thank you. Applause, please. Thank you. <laughs> Applause and is that hundred percent. Thank you. In pickleball, what is the pickle? Well, you get pickled if you don't score. Good for you. You're absolutely right. Thought I was going to grab you there. Yeah. Number ten. What's harder, raising children or asking for money? I think raising children. <laughs> I have two. I have an adult teen and a sixteen-year-old at home right now, and my house just went from zero to a hundred when my daughter came home from college last week, and mm-hmm. it's a lot. It's a lot. <laughs> you forgot. Yes, but they're adults now in their minds and they know everything and you're the stupid one. So I'm being told constantly what I need to be doing, not what 
you know, anytime I suggest, I'm told how I should be proposing this better. And yes, I'm I'm constantly learning from them. You know, I, I, yeah, I see you your say earlier. <laughs> what goes around comes around. Comes around, yes. All I could say. Yes. I mean, I know for myself that the older I've gotten, the stupider I think that I am. I mean, you know, it's just you think you're so smart, you know everything, and then you realize, oh. Yeah, but it's a whole different ballgame when you have a young person reminding you or telling you. Right. All the time. All the time. Well, I didn't say they were right, but. (laughs) (laughs) They're not right. Dang it. There are times I will say when I had, I took my daughter to college last summer and there was this very tense moment and everyone says you get all emotional when you drop your kid off at school. My emotion came at, um when we were at orientation and it was, she hadn't done some things and we were supposed to be scouting out cause she was going to a junior college and the college. And it's a lot of details, but she hadn't, we're coming across the bridge and I'm like, okay, where are we going? Cause she wanted to own the directions and all this stuff. And she's like, I don't know. What are you talking about? And that sort of exploded into you wanted to do this on your own and me trying to, I think there's a thing when you have children where you want them to succeed and what you don't realize is when you feel like they're not doing what you think they should be doing, you feel like you're failing. And at this point, it's her job. It's her life. And it was a hard 24 hours. But once I came a- across it, like I am here as a, somebody said once I was listening to a podcast, like we're here now to guide them and, and show them the path and within some parameters, but it's their life. And I let go. And then it's like, okay, we're, we have to be partners on this path. I'm, it's not the adult child. It's a team. So I'm really big about team right now. And how do you manifest that in your, in your uh, responses and in your interactions with them? Um, that has to be quite a, quite hard. Yeah. I think it goes back to any training we've had about different client uh colleague engagement, difficult conversations, and you really have to put yourself in that listening mode, which I think um, to see what really is going on, especially when there's a lot of high emotion. Um, I think we've all been there in the event planning hospitality. Um, I learned that really early that I was at a, I was a manager on duty at a hotel one night and had this man, woman come and insist she had money stolen out of her room. And I was asking all the questions about, so when did this happen? And I'm going through the, my training of, you know, like what the step-by-step process. And it, it really came down to, it would have been very difficult for anybody to have been in our room when they weren't there because pretty much were there the whole time. And I just listened and took notes and, um, and it taught me. And then later the woman went back to her room and the husband came and he said, thank you for listening. This has been a difficult few days. And what I'd really seen was somebody dealing with a failing memory, mm. which isn't funny, but it, but it really kind of crystallized like these people we meet in our industries have many other things going on. And, and that's just like a teen. You're mad at them because they didn't pick up their their room or they're not listening to you but when you sit back there's like usually a hundred other things going on in their mind and it's hard for them to tell you but you kind of have to wait for them mm-hmm. so timing is everything with the team just mm-hmm. like timing is anything with the different difficult conversation i'm not saying i'm really good at it all the time but i'm learning mm. well it's usually best when it's on their time right and mm-hmm. when they when they're searching it out rather than being 
put upon by a suggestion as they see it or a recommendation. You know, yes. why are you butting in where you're not needing to, well, you know, because I think that you need me here. Uh, and you do, but yeah, yeah. It's learning when to say, I know Alex, you, well, do you have that same issue with, with Illy? Well, yeah. I mean, um, little less now that she's out on her own. She's so my daughter graduated high school year early and went off to college. She's in San Diego, but um, there's, I think a little more of her willingness to come seek me out. But one of the things that I've learned that works with her is, and I mean it sincerely, it's it's not a game, but when she asks something, I look her in the eyes and I say, I'm very happy to share with you. Is this something you really want to hear? And if your answer is no, that's okay. How can I help you? That's great. And then we have the conversation. That's awesome. You started as a travel agent, which we've come to learn, and you eventually moved from dive travel to destination management, which led us to wonder, what is dive travel? Is it underwater travel or is it staying at dives? Yeah, I know, right? Because a good dive bar, who doesn't love a good dive bar? Um, I said the same thing. I said the same thing, Michelle. You find a dark bar, I'll go. Um, <laughs> no, I, it is very different. Scuba diving is probably more, I should have said, but I got into the, I was a, a leisure planner. I never went to Hawaii. I could sell Hawaii like nobody's business, especially if you're going on your honeymoon. Um, and then I did corporate travel, but one of, I, I wanted to move into destination management and they didn't want me to move to Escondido. And so they have this position come available. So Ocean Enterprises is in San Diego and they wanted somebody to come on site and be a dive travel person to sell high end luxury vacations or just diving trips all over the world. So I did that and um, it was really interesting. Um, it was me in, I showed up for my first day of work because it was a corp, I was used to a corporate uh, environment and I'm showing up at this dive shop and dress in heels. <laughs> They're all looking at me like, what? <laughs> what are you wearing? Um, but I got to learn to, I got certified as a diver um, through that experience. And I knew I liked diving because I had been on some travel to the came or no, before that I'd been to Jamaica, but then I got to go to all these great dive destinations. Wow. So one of the first crazy things I did was I sold, I had gone on a familiarization trip to Grand Cayman and they had one of those submarines where as a passenger, you can get under and go see the fish if you don't, if you're not a diver yourself. And I came back and um, that was just one of the things we did. We went off all the coral reefs and everything. It was a beautiful diving, 200 foot visibility. It was like flying because it was so beautiful and clear and really amazing colored fish came back and this woman wanted to get married and she wanted to get married underwater because she and her husband oh. had met as divers and I said well I have an idea I was just in Grand Cayman um what if your guests were on the submarine and we could make it and they had just come up with the dry suits with the two-way communication so I basically came up with this idea to book this package for this wedding again the creative side of me right let's let's put on a wedding underwater and um love it i love it 
I'll never forget. Um, no one knew what I should charge for my services. And I only charged $500. And this was back in the late 90s. And I'm never like, that was, she got a steal. That's in addition to whatever she paid. But um, it worked. It all worked. And um, so that was just one small thing. I did a lot of group travel to um, Borneo. Mm. I didn't go to Borneo, but I planned a lot of trips. Um, but I did go on another familiarization familiarization trip to Fiji, Vanuatu, New Caledonia, and the Solomon Islands. Mm. And it was a crazy two-week trip. I did 200 modes of transportation because a familiarization trip is to familiarize you with these destinations so you will sell them. I had signed up for a five-star trip and a week before the operator decided to make it an eco-tourism trip because that was the new hot thing to do. But we were going to the South Pacific in the rainy season. (laughs) So we get on this trip and we're basically staying in really nice thatch roof huts. And I mean, it was very warm inside our area, but my feet were wet for two weeks, but I did the most amazing diving I've ever done in my entire life. I got a, a, um, off of Haniara, which is the Solomon Island. They have basically the equivalent of Japan's Pearl Harbor with all of their sunken ships from Japan. And so we did a couple of wreck dives that were, I saw uh, basically the Japanese version of the Red Cross ship and they had a bunch of it was amazing um i saw it look i stayed in places that looked like king kong would come out of the jungle at any moment but the flights that we took were island hopper flights on um tiny tiny islands of landing strip and i basically once said oh my god my mom's gonna kill me and i'm like well if i die she can't kill me i'll just be dead But I was on this plane going, what am I doing out here? But it was the most amazing trip um, of just meeting uh, people from different cultures. And um, New Zealand is basically, uh, Vanuatu is the colony of New Zealand. And they really embrace their island culture and and the tribal system is still involved. And we got to meet all the tribes. But you go to New Caledonia, which is the French industrialized area, and they nickel mine, mine for nickel there. And it was just a stark contrast with this nickel mining and then this beautiful French looking cities. So mm-hmm. it, it was the most phenomenal trip. I, I That's what my dive travel experience was, was really seeing cultures all over the world and meeting people from like photographers from National Geographic and all of these different people that would come into the dive shop and be going to these crazy destinations. And mm-hmm. then Warner, Warner Kern's the owner and he's just a life experience and just a force of nature and um it was really good but that's where i met my husband oh really oh and is that where you learned to sell or were you selling already as an agent i was selling i'd been selling as an agent um as a corporate travel agent and then as a, a vacation specialist for ever um and then this was very different this was very much um finding because dive is a is a high as a hierarchy and we call princess divers versus the rough divers so if you're diving off of La Jolla Cove you're going in like 60 degree water and full wetsuit and you're ready to be a tough person and so you have the guys and then you have the ladies like 
my preference is the princess diving where you have the boat and you have it's super warm like 80 degree water and 200 foot visibility so sort of reading your audience and knowing and if you have a manly diver with a woman where can you send them that they'll both be happy because he probably mm -hmm. wants to adventure and deep dive versus she wants to you know sit by the pool a couple of times and have some margaritas mm -hmm. <laughs> don't blame her <laughs> I just I. have to ask you, and I know, I know it's a little off topic, but just with this, because I'm sitting here kind of hyperventilate, uh, hyperventilating, I, I would love to learn to scuba dive. But the thought of all of that around my head, was that something that, or do you ever encounter that when you're working yes. with people? Well, that was, so it was a big change for me. I always thought I was afraid of, um, that I, I wouldn't be able to breathe right. I was a cost, maybe get claustrophobic. I didn't, and having, um, okay, so I'll tell you this. The first time I experienced diving was a resort course in Jamaica. And so the water is azul. It is so beautiful. It's Greek blue. It's amazing. And then there's not much to see there, but you don't have to wear a wetsuit. You're basically wearing a life jacket when you first get in the water or you're, I'm sorry, you have your, you release the water out of your um, vest. And so you jump in the water and you're floating and then you're just sinking. And so you do a resort course and you're like, oh, I'm 20 feet below the water, but I feel like I'm flying because you can see in every direction. And so if you have this fantasy to fly, that is the closest you're going to get. So warm water and a resort course, and you don't have to go deep. And especially in places like... Um, uh, Grand Cayman and even some places in Hawaii you can even do the snuba where you're like basically on a um a tether snorkel and the snorkel is basically a line that's got air coming in mm -hmm. through and you're not going deep but try that and okay. and once you do that you're gonna know if you want to go a little deeper and and you can take the courses in the warm water but I will tell you this I was certified I had to be certified here and it was a challenge because I we did it um, when there was like eight foot visibility. And so, and the water's moving like this and it's cold. And I would be sitting on that boat and I'd be like, I can't handle this. But as soon as I jumped on the water and I was floating, I was fine. Um, but you have to trust your people. And that's the one thing I learned. Diving's a safety sport. You have to trust your you have to trust your dive master. You have to trust your people. So if you ever go out diving and you do not feel safe, trust your inner voice. Just know that you need a partner and you need to stay together because that's how you keep each other safe. Do you still, awesome. uh, do you keep your agency, your travel agency license? Do you still keep that up? No, I haven't done no. that for quite some time No. Well, mm -hmm. I do my personal travel. <laughs> well, there you go. That's, a, that's all that matters. <laughs> You worked at the Del Mar Fair growing up too. So what yes, jobs what did it what, was the Del Mar Fair? Now it's the San yeah, Diego County Fair. That's right. And it's actually happening right now. I uh, know. But tell us what you did, what your job or jobs were. So um, I actually worked for the 22nd Agricultural District, which is what runs the fair. So it's actually mm -hmm. the entity that runs the logistics of the fair. And I was hired to work in the art show and it was kind of fun. I was an art docent, but what that meant is prior to the fair opening, we would go hang all the art at the fair. Mm -hmm. And then, um, 
and it was really great because it's anything from contemporary modern art to ceramics um, and everything in between, kid art. Mm -hmm. um, so that was kind of interesting because once you got it hung, you really, your job was to like talk to people as they came and went to the fair. Um, but it was, but all my other friends worked at like the food booths where they're working crazy hours. And we were like, I think we got the best job because we had very strict regulations. Um, but I did that a couple years in between college. And then I worked when that fair was over, I worked for the thoroughbred club. Mm. And at the time, um, I was a cigarette girl and a hostess. No, cocktail waitress. Cocktail waitress. And wow. I, one of my shifts was back in the day when you could sell cigarettes. I would, and they told me, like, don't just get cigarettes. Go buy lollipops. Go buy. And so, like, these old timers, and I'm talking, like, old timers who were there when Bing Crosby were there were like, mm -hmm. here's how you're going to make some money. Like, go do this and, like, sell this. And. I would get like $50 tips from some people just for having their right kind of candy or whatever. But that was a different time. It was before it was renovated. Um, right. It's a concert venue now. Mm -hmm. The off betting is a. Yes. 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 But all. Yeah. The sound. Yes. Mm -hmm. But. But there was also after concerts then. They had just started the after mm -hmm. track concerts and I did right. a couple catering events there, too. Yeah, so I did it all. I did a lot of catering events. <laughs> so was that in the 90s? Mm -hmm. So in the 90s, I remember producing a show for the Thoroughbred Club. Yeah. They had a gala. They used to have a gala. They may still every year. And we. Oh, yes. Uh, I it was one of those projects that I talked myself into and then thought, what did I do? Uh, because it was a musical theater. We had Nell Carter in that show, actually. Oh, and we uh, it was a musical theater-based show, but I had rewritten a lot of the songs, so the focus was on horses, you know, the, and the whole script was about horses and horse racing. And so, of course, we had the number from Guys and Dolls. Um, That's awesome. And, you know, a million others. Yeah, but you were probably around at I that was. Time. I was probably around. It was a small, it's a small world. It is. It is a small world. But you know, I have to be honest. I still cannot remember where we met. Okay. I was thinking about this too. And I wonder if it was the event team when I was working for um, Matt, Matt Robbins at the event team, or it would have been one of my hotels. It would have, might've been in suites when I worked because now the Lafayette again. When I reopened so, in suites, did you come and do talent for one of those events? No, but I was the president of HSMAI. Could it Maybe have been through, through HSMAI? That might have been it. And MPI. I was more involved with HSMAI. I mean, I was really involved. I was everywhere there for, you know, during the late 90s, early 2000s, up till about 2010, actually. So I'm thinking that might have been where we initially met, but I don't remember our first, honestly, our first engagement, why, why we love each other so much, what happened, where, how I we got what we are. Either. I think we must have been in one of the organizations because I worked as soon as, when I left, um, my first job was down at what is now the Lafayette Hotel on El Cajon Boulevard. It's gone through many renditions. Yes, it is. We, yes, it is. At the wait time a minute. It, it was... just wait, 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 wait. I'm so, so sorry, but it just sunk in. 
that that's the hotel you're talking about because it's yeah. right down the street. Yeah. From where I live. Okay. I'm on yes. Mississippi and it's, so, yeah. And so that's why I'm thinking that we might've been in the hood because then I moved down there um, in late 2000 or 2001 um, right up. Of, I just drove by there off of 4511 Ohio street is not the apartment complex I lived in. It's a four story, two block building now, but mm -hmm. um, I kind of, I started working down there and then I worked for the event team. And I feel like between those two and then the associations, whether it was HSMII and MPI combined, I think we might have just been in the same circles and hanging out with the same people and enjoying this, enjoying each other's company. Maybe. And now I'm wondering if Billy Yaris didn't introduce us. That's probably it. That is probably 100% it. Yes, it could be the conduit, right? Because yes. he was with the vent team forever. Oh, yeah. I work for Billy, like. I was on his sales team. And he was on, when I first joined the board of HSMAI back in the 90s, he was on the board. He didn't remain on it, but he was on it. And we remained friendly throughout all, you know, all these years. As a matter of fact, I saw him recently. We saw him somewhere. It was really good to see him. And wow, I think that... we hired you for carolers for some of a couple of events I did at one of the hotels I worked at. I mean, there was just this ongoing thing because we've been well it's, it's a good thing yes so um you also worked at at, at calavi health spa i did oh wow which quite honestly neither of us alex nor i knew that there was a calavi health spa in vista that wow. it is as beautiful as Ooh. it looks it's really stunning looking did you get any of those perks while you were working there? Did you get to stay oh, there? One of the things I had to do as the director of sales was stay a week. And get oh, oh, gosh. Oh, oh, yeah, it was really hard. Um, yeah, it was it was an interesting, um, fun job, and I loved it a lot. It was at a time when I was looking to sort of depart hotels and hospitality because my husband and I were like, it was, you know, we're like, we want to have kids. The life of a hotelier is kind of nonstop, 365, seven days a week. Um, but I worked there for almost a year and I loved it. I think Debbie Z is still the director or the general manager. But um, yeah, that's the, you know, the claim place that Oprah stole her chef Rosie from. And oh. I didn't work there when Rosie worked there, but I worked oh. there. Oh, yes. Drama. But it was a very interesting place. It's phenomenal. And um, its rival, I guess, would be the Golden Door. But I think they're very different in the way they mm. approach um, their business. But it was fabulous. You basically start your morning, if you want, at 6 a.m. with a hike. I continued doing that at least once or twice a week as part of my job to mingle with the guests. Um, and then you have your breakfast and then you do your three to four hours of exercise and then you have your lunch and then you have your afternoon treatments and then maybe another optional exercise, yoga or hike in the afternoon. You go there and you choose whether or not you want to lose weight, maintain or gain weight, depending um, we had all sorts of clients, as you can imagine, um, quiet people who wanted to just sort of made, 
be anonymous and they'd socialize at lunch and dinner, but it was meant to be a very healthy place. So no alcohol or um, sugary beverages were sold or like as part of any of any of the meals. But if you wanted to bring them in, we would, you know, that was your own choice. Um, but it was an interesting, you know, you'd, you'd see all types of people there, people getting ready to go to, to try to get a part in a movie um stars stalker channing stayed there while i was there oh one of my favorites Love yes she I just watched Pu wong fu again the other night oh she's so gosh. wonderful in that um she actually was very funny she's very independent and she showed up and um it was warm it was like this where you know the sun comes out and the and it gets really hot right and it was it was springtime and it was rattlesnake mm -hmm. season and she took off on a hike by herself which is not something you do there and it was like everyone was putting out an apb for stuff chanting like on the down low but just to make sure like could you just go like somebody to go at the end of the trail and somebody go, like follow her and then try to meet her just to make sure she's okay she doesn't need to know we're there but we're just gonna make sure nothing happens so we were very respectful of people wanting their space but um yeah there was some quirky things that that was just that's a minor one but there's some quirky stuff that went on there so do you have any advice for those who are glued to having a career in uh, operations and just don't consider sales as a uh, you know direction because they consider themselves to be anything but a salesperson do you have any words of wisdom for them Oh, I do it. Um, I, I think if the hesitation, I think, and I have this too, is like a meeting a sales goal or meeting, a, you know, that goal. And I think if you love what you do and you know what you're doing and you learn how to listen, it's not selling. You're helping people achieve their goals. And if you're on the sales side, um, as an operations person, you bring this wealth of experience to really know what's possible. I think, and, and, and I don't know what we're talking about sales. Is it event sales? Is it hospitality? Hospitality, sales? event yeah. sales, sales in, in general, general in our industry. I think you're, you're providing what's possible. And I think that's the one thing, you know, I said I wasn't an actress and I'm not, but I think in theater, we we look at what's possible. We're all about the collaboration. We we see opportunities. We see what people are good at. I think if you come from an operations background, especially I'm going to use the hotel as an example, um, you're going to see what's possible in catering, what's possible in the valet, what's possible in event space, the flexibility of that event space, how people move through rooms. And you can really help drive a destiny for um, success with your client, depending on what they want to achieve. Um, you know, travel sales was really selling a dream. And I, I think operationally, you know, you're like booking the planes and doing those flights, but you don't get to sell a dream. And I think the thing about the sales part is you're actually kind of helping people see a vision and, and, and making it happen. And you actually get to see through the success, whereas in operations, you're usually tied to one or two things mm -hmm. and you'll see it. I think as a catering operations person, you see it more in person, but um, to make the jump to sales, you're just going to 
have more fun, I think, meeting people and experiencing more opportunity for vision. I'm a vision person. I'm a big picture person. Mm. And I think that's what allows you to do. Yeah. And and you like painting that picture. I, like, I yeah. do. You I do. do. Yeah. It's one of the qualities you need to have, whether you're in sales or operations, if you're dealing with clients, because that's what they look to us for is the vision and right. to help, or at least to help them manifest theirs, bring theirs right. to and the other, Yes, absolutely. Manifest their vision. And then also you can see, you know, where it can go. If you're on operations, you pretty much know where the hiccups are and mm -hmm. what can go south. And so you have, you have the experience to know not how to say no, but how to navigate the good outcome. To the that was very yes. very beautifully put um I, I want to say something and i'm sort of holding back but i'm going to say it anyway it could always be cut yeah that's right in in gay lingo we say that the really good tops have been bottoms and so in sales lingo i would say that the really good salespeople have been operations people i agree Right. Because they understand the issues and they're not selling the dream that then becomes a nightmare. Right. It's being mm -hmm. sold in a way that's that's realistic and feasible and doable. Yeah, I think one of the things you said, you know, this this podcast is about entertainment and engagement. And I think the whole thing about sales in any hospitality is, is you're engaging people to engage more people. You're selling to somebody because they're trying to engage a client you know, their family, whatever that goal is. And I think you said this once on this podcast that you, you learn so much from your mistakes mm -hmm. and operationally, you have so much more to give in sales than the person who comes in and says, I can sell everything. And they're just selling to meet that dollar amount. Right. And they have no idea what they're doing. And I've seen it happen on both sides. And I've seen it to the detriment of the client, whether it's something was sold at a cost that it, really didn't account for all the nitty gritty detail mm -hmm. and there wasn't enough money to really cover what needed to be done or they were sold something that was super expensive and it really didn't they didn't know what to put around it they did have no vision to what to put around it to really execute the arrival to the you know my whole thing is your event your whatever starts at the invitation it doesn't mm -hmm. have to be a fancy invitation, but the communication on that invitation and what they're going to expect really dictates it. So if you send a $15 invitation and they show up to Velveeta and pretzels, you've really not nailed that vision. <laughs> so That's right. I, I think um, anybody who's been in operations has seen that up front um, and they really know how to start. They should know how to start and end. Mm -hmm. It really is. And we say this all the time. It's about the story that you tell mm -hmm. and Absolutely. how you string it along. Right. And and the customer or the or the guest touch points that you deliver on before, during and after it's Absolutely. the ride is much longer than we some we've traditionally thought it was. It's a much longer ride. And and we do want to engage those people and keep them interested throughout it's so tell very us. True. So tell us. I'm gonna I'm gonna switch gears because um, you're now in fundraising, mm -hmm. right? Which is different from planning, but in some cases it 
they're very similar activities. So, so tell us what you love about fundraising and what maybe, you know, is hard and difficult. Yeah. So I've, Started at UC San Diego, I was hired because I came from a sales background. That's what I believe. I was supposed to, when I was hired, they had an event team and they had this kickoff event for their donors, but they weren't marrying the goals and strategy of the fundraising to the event execution. Mm -hmm. And so it's like, you can have a gala and you can bring in external entertainment and do all these things, but are you showcasing the university? Are you elevating the story of that university and the fundraising um, you're trying to do? And so as my time progressed there, I really was listening to our fundraising teams to know what their goals were. I was listening to the faculty to understand what their passion points were. I was listening to my team going, you know, we have to stay within these man these parameters because we're a public university and you can't make it look like you're drinking champagne and eating caviar at these public um, funding because there's a perspective that it's all right. paid for by the state, but it's not. It's 73% is paid by outside donations. So, so my strategic mind, again, kind of goes back to what is your ultimate goal and really collaborating with all of these entities to make it a success to drive fundraising for whatever this is. I was a little nervous flipping over into this analyst role, but it really was taking my donor engagement and experience because that was the last team I was a part of. My managing director job was part of donor engagement and experience. And for a university, it really is trying to get them, whether they're an alumni or a friend of the university, where is their passion point? What is their story about the university? Are they alum and they, you know, majored in biology, but I'm going to tell a story I, that I, I probably should, there's, there's a donor who at UC San Diego majored in a science and high capacity wealth and they really wanted to engage her in the sciences but they kept reaching out by virtue of the dean and she's like oh but there was a craft center when she went to the school and it was they did um, glass uh, jewelry and glass design and that was her escape that was kind of her place while she was at the school and in the end that was her passion and so when somebody finally listened um and aligned her with her passion she was all about giving because she wanted to give back and have other students coming up have this experience who maybe couldn't pay for the craft or and so I really just get excited about seeing um the craft center or um, a program, a, a faculty run program that they're trying to get off the ground and you find a donor that's passionate about it and you find it, it's going to help students or it's gonna take the research into a new level. Um, and I get excited. And so now I'm bringing together, I'm my job is to sit and listen to all the different fundraisers and who their donors are and then try to help align that strategy to the overall giving of that unit. And it's sort of building, uh, it's a puzzle. And it, we always say it's an art more than it is a science. You you have to work within, you know, a donor wants to give and they say, I want to give to this kind of student. I want to do this kind of thing. And it's like, well, we have to work within some state guidelines. So it's it's sort of that conversation about 
what is it you want to accomplish as a donor and where are you trying to have the biggest impact and what in addition to that and you have some donors who just want to give and they they don't want to be recognized they they want some knowledge of what happened to the gift but they are anonymous and then you have the donors that want it all and including their name on a building right their name on a building but they maybe don't have quite enough to do that so it's it's really finding a way to balance Mm -hmm. the donor wants with what is needed at the school and then the greatest accomplishment for the university but really the students um and the betterment of the faculty's research and development so it's it's interesting it's never boring um it can be challenging Mm -hmm. uh just like any trying to put all these, you know, square peg, round hole kind of thing. We have that a lot. Um, but that's how I transitioned. It was really that big picture trying to weave a story into or weave a weave a method to make the story come true. Would it be fair to say that you are building an emotional connection with those donors? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, again, I'm going to go back to listening. I think that's the conversation my team and I have all the time is really listening to what that donor wants. And and my research combined with we have, you know, prospect development research, like where have they given before? And you not just look at like where the money has gone, you read the stories and you see what what their passion points are. And they're going to most of the time tell you. But um you know, there's all these initiatives. Let's just say there's 10 initiatives on the table and they come and they go, I have this 11th idea. I have this 11th idea over here. And you're like, okay, I want to make that 11th idea happen, but that area is not really set up for this. And I don't know how we're going to do it. And I need to, to do that kind of thing. Like, let's say it's, $25,000 they want to get, but to do that kind of thing, they really need to do a hundred, but they might be willing to give a hundred because you looked at all their other giving and you're like, they've given it a much higher level. Where is it? And it's aligning the conversation to give that donor the perspective of here's where we are. Here's where it could be with with this, this, and this. And you're sort of giving them a menu of options. Um, You said something though, and I'm not hitting that point. Um, emotional connection emotional connection we just had this donor and and basically they were really like i I, i'm ready to give i know i want to give and these are all these different areas and they asked for information but they stopped coming back to this i'm going to call it number 11 and when i looked at their other giving and when i looked like the, the areas that they actually put their name to with the other universities they were involved with number 11 was the only place they attached their name And I went back to my boss and I said, I know you're going to give them these other options when you have this meeting, but I have to tell you, my gut instinct is he really wants this project because that is the only place he's put his name in public reference anywhere else. And he's done some major projects that he's been anonymous, but this is where he ties his name every single time. Sure enough, they had we had a meeting with our higher up. She's like, okay, but I want to bring up this other number two because this is a top priority for us. But we'll bring in 11, but I want to bring number two. They left the meeting and they're like, my boss was like, you were right. 
that is where his passion is. That is where he does it. This is how we're going to do it. Everyone heard it. This is, we're going to move it forward. But it was like, yes. <laughs> I mean, that was, you want to make it happen for them. Mm-hmm. And, and it, it was also going to carve a path for this, this area number 11, that's now got a huge opportunity. So it's, it's just a way to find a win, win, win. Very interesting. Uh, yes. Yeah. Yeah. You know, because if you don't have the experience as a philanthropist, you don't understand that just because you want to give money for something, it's going to happen. You know, and there is a conversation and it's a delicate conversation. Mm -hmm. It's a very delicate conversation. And especially um, I'm doing a lot of work on um, uh, diversity, equity and inclusion. I've done a lot of training personally and professionally, but it's obviously I'm at Berkeley very big, you know, actors and making sure social justice is happening. But everyone has an idea of what that looks like and what that should be. And some very wealthy donors will come in and say, I want to do X and this is the way I'm going to do it. And I want to, I'm just, this happens at every university. I want to give to this kind of student. I want to pick the student. And it's like, we're a public university. And what we can, we the dance with philanthropy is, ensuring that you're keeping the integrity and the principles of community of the school and the principles of um, the foundation of the school and and doing what's right by the students, but also the governing bodies of the students and being very careful about, um, you can't just let, I mean, we want people to give to the university, but it has to be the right gift and right. it has to be the right understanding like you said you can't just give to an orange child with purple hair who wants to study math because this is you know you have to open it up mm-hmm. broadly and mm-hmm. be more um inclusive it's, for all it's, for all reasons it's not that uh different in the in the nonprofit world as well it's exactly the same mm-hmm. yeah it's in that you have to be very careful where the money comes from and what it's intended for because otherwise you're in scope creep and you're trying to find solutions to problems that you didn't originally what weren't originally part of your mission or your vision yes yes you want to keep a lot of uh, integrity there right all right so wait talking about integrity we have to ask you because you (laughs) had the you had the uh auspicious experience of working with the Dalai Lama when he came to UCSD in, I think it was 2017. So uh, you helped to coordinate his logistics, as I remember. Would you give us a deep dive on what your duties were? Yes. So um, there was a whole team. um, There's a whole special events and protocol team that we were all working on this in many different ways, but um, I was brought in off, as soon as I finished a project, I was told, you are going to be the concierge to the entourage of the Dalai Lama. And I sort of stepped back and I went, what? Like, I haven't (laughs) been involved, you guys. Okay, okay, great. Fantastic. What does this mean? And I was immediately launched into um, meetings with Lama Tenzin, who was his emissary here and basically told you know here's his itinerary and I was working in concert with another colleague of mine 
And we were basically on the ground logistics for the entourage, which meant transportation, catering, and housing um, at a local hotel. And we were also working in concert with our colleagues in, you know, in special events protocol, because not only were they, was he there for the graduation, he was there for four days to do all sorts of meetings with his, um, I don't know if his followers is the right word, but the um, Tibetan people are people without country and he has found a home in India. And with that, as you can imagine, there's political things that go on, but there's also the people who have worshipped him as, you know, for years and years throughout their family. And it was such an interesting situation to be in, both as just a logistics manager, but also as in person when you were facing all of these different people. So we had an itinerary that we were managing for five days from his arrival through the graduation and it involved walking through everything from rehearsals to the graduation to um, uh, in-person meetings that happened at the hotel for either um, dignitaries or other people who had had private meetings. And it was uh, it was interesting because between the, the Department of the State, which provided the security, um, the Tibetan government which showed up and we didn't really have any interaction with them prior to the His Holiness actually arriving. Um, our conduit was Lama Tenzin and he was, there, there's a lot of expectations of here's how the itinerary is gonna run. Here's when they eat, you know, here's our whole, our, our, our hour by hour mm-hmm. itinerary for the whole day that you'll live by that we'll live by and right. we will and we will do all these things and it started before his holiness arrived with his own chef showing up and my colleague taking them shopping and that was a whole interesting situation but um you know he's known to get up at three in the morning his holiness and then pray and then he has his own private meal and then there's more meals for the entourage and then they go off for their first meeting with whoever um so the hotel the hotel had to allow his chef access to their kitchen so originally no but that's ended up what happening because when they cooked in the hotel penthouse there was smoke everywhere so it was ended up that the that the two chefs that they brought ended up getting a small space in the kitchen of the hotel and i be, i bonded with the hotel i'm just um the hotel i don't know if i can say but we bonded so the catering manager and i and my colleague it was never a dull moment with the catering because there were meals that were set and in addition to the sh- the catering meals that were coming from the hotel the chefs were making food for his holiness and the five monks that attended him. And then the day would progress. And, you know, he, the, his holiness is going from um, meeting to meeting to meeting his, the people who worship him, who are just in awe of being in his presence to having very serious business meetings with the Tibetan government. And then he's supposed to like, have another meeting but when he's going from point a to point b he sees something and so 
things could change at a moment's notice. And he mm -hmm. himself is a very wonderful, calm, graceful individual. And um, everybody around him, as you can imagine, is on point from mm -hmm. the security guards to his entourage. And then you have the Tibetan government. And and this part, the, his holiness is is going to do what he wants to do but everybody in the background is telling you why is why is this not happening the way it was supposed to happen right, and, right. and you just go with it like right. it was one of those situations where you just right. go with it and i think for me it was a bizarre five days because i was doing what i needed to do to keep everybody informed on my team at uc san diego for the for the graduation but once the graduation was open there were all these other things and there were some other events that were happening in the hotel but the background that was happening behind the scenes because i stayed with the entourage on the same hallway as their hotel it was kind of crazy how quickly things could turn from there's free space here too we need a, a meeting and demand or where did his holiness go oh he decided to go down to the bar to meet with so-and-so and you're like the bar. He can't be there without us shutting the bar yeah. down. And they did. Um, so it oh was, <laughs> so one of the things, so it was very just crazy because I mean, when I would say the three weeks up to this, we were basically being taken through this itinerary told how strict everything had to be told how mandated it had to be and it did stay on task for the most part but once we were coming back his holiness was arriving he had all of his worshipers outside the hotel lots of security he comes in through the lobby but the bar is open as on the way to this the lobby elevators the bar at the end of the hall is open and it's beautiful. It's glass and silver and mirrors. And he's like, and he just walks and they're like, here's the elevator to the left. And he walks straight <laughs> and everyone just follows him. And he walks into this and the state department security people are looking at me and I'm like, I have no control here. Like, this is not, this is so out of my realm. It's and, human will kids. <laughs> yeah, it's like he wants to see it. And so he basically made a circle with this whole, like, I would say army of five that kind of surrounded him, comes back out, like, does a U-turn? And we're like, okay, he's going back up for lunch. Everyone sort of took a break because we knew everyone was having their lunches in these different places. When I came back down for the next meeting, um, I was talking to the one of the State Department security guards, and he's like, oh, yeah, that was interesting this afternoon. We had to shut down. I don't know, the Luna bar. And I'm like, you had to do what? And the catering manager is like, you had to do what? And he's like, well, he just went into the bar and we just suggested that anybody who came up after him would find a better, be better accommodated down at the pool. And so the hotel was like, you shut down my bar in the middle of the afternoon. But it just happened and it only happened for like an hour and then we right. went on with our business. But that's just a very small example of kind of this um, hilarity that would happen behind the scenes and um, all on the, the, you know, hope that we are keeping him safe and secure. But 
So not to get too personal about him, but um, we read that he was a vegetarian, but then his doctors instructed that he should start uh, introducing red meat back into his diet. So we were just curious, um, was there anything interesting that he ate? Were there green M&Ms on his rider? What? You know? <laughs> well, that was, I mean, I will say he had these chefs that came and made this incredible, authentic Asian Tibetan food. And he decided once that it very, like, okay, so we made the accommodation into the chefs having the space in the kitchen. And we had all these other catered meals that were also for he and his entourage. So it could be that he could have partake, you know, there was, I don't know if there was red meat, but everything was cooked. He doesn't eat anything uncooked. And um, one afternoon I was taking his secretary down to the zoo to um, do the run through because he was going to go to the zoo next day and she wanted to go see it so i was going with her to do the site inspection there and she gets a call from one of the i get a call from one of the chefs because he wants his holiness wants fresh corn chowder and we are like well can you make it and they're like we don't know how to make it and this is like day four and we've had a lot of changes up until then. And this secretary to his holiness, which would never tell this story or tell anybody anything about him, was so demure. And there was a lot of crazy things happening. She never said a bad word about anybody. But now the little chefs that we, the two little, the two chefs say, we can't make this food. The kitchen has been shut down because not our, not the hotel kitchen, but the restaurant kitchen is shut down because it's two o'clock in the afternoon for lunch. There's nowhere. And I'm supposed to call the catering manager to see if I can get some fresh corn chowder for his holiness. And whatever it was about this, it broke his secretary. So she's like, she just was sitting there and she was trying to comprehend it. And all of a sudden she just started laughing. And she was in this, we're in this car on the way to the zoo. And it was like the stress of all trying to keep all these balls in the air. She just started laughing so hard. She was crying. She was laughing so hard. So then I was laughing so hard. And again, this lovely woman would never say anything negative about anybody. But I had to call my colleague and go, you need to figure out how to get his holiness some fresh corn chowder soup. And that, but so I don't know about red meat, but um, he 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 will eat what he wants at will. Is that's what I have to say because I'm telling you the menu was extensive, up and down. Like there was a lot of food available, wow. and the and the great news is when it didn't get eaten, and those chefs made these egg rolls and these bao buns that my friend and I got to eat, they were phenomenal phenomenal like the best food like could they open a, a restaurant right now it was the best food ever but i think there was some meat in those bow buns i think it was pork mm. so you refer to him as his holiness you didn't hear anybody scream out hello dolly <laughs> or what's yeah, the dl maybe. dl none DL, of that DL. none of that not really but he's funny 
he's he likes to laugh and if anybody did he'd enjoy it. i will tell you i we had so anybody who worked with him got the pleasure to meet him after like formally and bring their families and so i took i got to bring my um, husband and my daughter and my son and my son was probably seven at the time and he's got really blonde white blonde hair and I don't know what it was about my son Charlie and his holiness but his holiness was whispering in Charlie's ear Charlie doesn't remember my husband doesn't remember the whole thing he says he went into some weird trance state but they were giggling my son and his holiness were giggling. And to this day, it's kind of like this funny thing. Like he has a huge sense of humor and um, he he likes to have fun. And it all, even his, um, all these formal, like he must have done nine formal, like seated gatherings where he's talking to people. If there was an opportunity for humor, he, t- he, he enjoyed that mm-hmm. greatly. I, I just have to ask you really quick, and I and I know we're running out of time, but did you feel when you were in his presence, was there any change in you? Did you feel any kind of elevation or were you just so in organizational, got to keep on track, make sure everything happens that that wasn't allowed to uh, come into play? I have to say, to be quite honest, personally, I got to hold his hand. Oh. And I... I think, Alex, to your point, I was so in this position of like, I felt this, and I shouldn't say this because I feel like I missed something. When I was there with my family, I felt so much different and more calm than when I was there and trying to do everything sure, right for sure. everybody. Mm-hmm. Of course. I held his hand and I feel like I should have kept holding it, but he was swept away. And so I had to let it go. And everyone was like, you should have gone with him. And I'm like, I, I should have like, because that would have meant I went into the elevator with him and I was, you were told all these things that you must not do. And so I, I had all the shoulds going on in my head. So Mm. those are the things that I don't, I wish maybe Mm. I had it. I hadn't let go of his hand because that was pretty special. I bet was, it was. And yeah. if I had really been in rapture, I wouldn't have let go. Right. I think that's, I, that's my one regret. <laughs> well, if you weren't there in a work capacity, right. Yes, maybe right. that would have been yes. the case. Right. But you still had the sense of responsibility right. and decorum, you know, and that's absolutely, you were putting his needs above your own. Right. Right. Trying to, yes. Right. And that's yeah. why you're good at what you do. And mm-hmm. that's what we all need to be willing mm-hmm. to do in this business. It's what it's the service business. It's what we all have to do. Well, thanks for saying that because I think in my mind it's like you should have, you know, I should have. No. Okay, so uh we're getting the, you know, cut this mm-hmm. soon. So I gotta get to the, as D'Angelo would say, the nitty gritty. The Bolotified Five. These are five questions that we want to ask you. The number one question, what is Michelle Corcoran's, not related to Barbara, golden rule? My dad taught me that the golden rule is do unto others as they would have done unto you. And I I do actually believe that. I, I think I try to... I try to respect people the way I would want to be treated, always. 
What is one daily habit you have that you strongly believe contributes to your success? When I'm on it, um, I try to take a moment in the morning, first thing, and just be grateful um, and and try to organize my thoughts for the day in a positive way, especially if I'm going into a day that I feel is challenging or I'm stressed or nervous. I really feel like it sets me up for success. And if I can, I try to meditate on those days. I should try to do that more often. But if I am doing that and then I walk, I try to walk every morning. Mm. Good habits. When no one is listening, what do you say to yourself? Well, when I'm not saying I should have, which is a bad thing to say, mm -hmm. um, you know, what can I do for fun? What can I do to bring joy? Um, and for me, my, my, my family. I think that's lovely. Uh, what is one change you'd like to see in the world? I want us to be together and collaborative more. Um, I mentioned nice. to the equity, diversity and inclusion piece. And I, and I work with a very diverse team and I think we have a synergy that's amazing. And I, I grew up wanting to meet people and cultures and I want that collaboration um, to be to be ongoing mm -hmm. um worldwide collaboration worldwide, worldwide collaboration mm -hmm. i want us to listen to each other more and mm -hmm. stop arguing <laughs> right all right and finally what is your why what's your purpose um i think i said joy but i i have to say my kids um i i think i'm trying to set an example especially for my daughter mm -hmm. um I think just showing them they can do whatever they want to if they put their mind to it and in their own way. Um, that's and they're making you better. I'm trying. Uh -huh. <laughs> they are. Yeah. They I, don't I, know it. Don't tell them that. Yeah. No. Don't tell them that. Yeah. yeah. I think I want to give them access. I, I think as a woman, I was told, I think I was, I, I know I was expected to get married and beyond that, I wasn't sure what to do. And I found myself in a place about 25 that I wasn't sure what I was supposed to do. And I never want that to happen to my daughter. So I think I did the right thing so far. She's, mm -hmm. she's, she's decided to go pre-med right now. So, I don't know. Not that that's the right path for everybody. And I, right. I'm, I'm certainly not sure that's going to stick with her, but yay. Okay, good. But she's exploring and finding it out and she's unafraid, which is, right. and, and, and the biggest thing, and I am going to put a gender on this. That's key for a young woman is to learn to go into the world knowing, but unafraid. Mm -hmm. Agreed. Agreed, Alex. And she has parents who are very much can do and very supportive. Mm -hmm. And that's, that's part of it too. You know, mm -hmm. you teach your kids that they put their mind to something, they can do anything they want. And that is a lesson that not every, not every parent teaches their children, but it's so valuable. And you do that. It's clear yes. that you do thank that. You. you model it, you model it, which is even better. So thank you for being with us today, Michelle Gordon. So fun. She's a she hers. I'm a he his. I'm yeah. a she. Nice. Uh, I don't know. I felt I felt I needed to say that other <laughs> yes, so much gender these days. That <laughs> yes, well, it's important. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank yes, you. It was thank so you. delightful to see your face again and hear your voice and 
hear your perspective. Thank you both for having me. It's such an honor. I love your your pod. And uh, thank you. I hope to see you all again soon and uh, maybe in person, Alex. I hope so. I'm going to be sending you out an email because I want some information on that that class. Yes, absolutely. That, that's, okay. that sounds up my alley. All righty. Hey, beautiful. All right. Thanks, you beautiful people. Mwah. Mwah. Hey, thank you for listening to Bellotified. If you haven't already, please like and subscribe. And remember to leave us your questions or comments at bolotta.com backslash podcast. Bellotified is a production of Bellotta Entertainment. Hey, that's a lot of Bellotta. Stay engaging.